Morning, everyone. Sorry, you guys have no seats to go to, so you're all gonna, you'll have to stay awake. Uh, two, two weeks ago, we started uh, a short Advent series focused on the topic of light, uh, partly because light is such a, a dominant theme at this time of year, but also because 2015 is the International Year of Light. And one of the phrases from their particular website and their publicity that we focused on a fortnight ago was this, that light is necessary to the existence of life itself. And and as we reflected on the Apostle John's kind of alternative take on Christmas in in John chapter 1, we highlighted the kind of fact and the truth and the reality that in Jesus is life. And according to John, that life was the light of all mankind. Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness. Jesus is the light, to kind of grab that phrase again from the International Year of Light, Jesus is the light that is necessary to the existence of life itself. Life as it's meant to be. Life in kind of all its fullness, Zoe life, eternal life. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why we give thanks at this time of year, every year, because the source of real life and real light has come. This morning, I I want to continue this theme of light, and I want to look at another kind of light that was crucial in the original Christmas story. So if you have a Bible, could I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 2? It's page 966 in the Pew Bibles. And as we often do here at Windsor, we're going to stand for the public reading of God's written word. So let's read the first 12 verses. Please stand with me. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed as was all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him too. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Grab a, grab a seat. I, I have called this morning, the title for this morning is Guiding Light, for, for obvious reasons, hopefully based on what we've just read. But a few people did ask me if I had kind of nicked the title from the Foy Vance song, uh, Guiding Light. How many people are familiar with this particular song? Some people were wondering, am I going to play it? Am I going to quote it? Or am I going to refer or even quote the verse that uh, features Ed Sheeran? Well, the answer to that is yes. 
Uh, at the very end of the service, just over tea and coffee, I am going to play Foy Vance's version of Gating Late. Uh, what I didn't realize as well is that Gating Late is also the title of an American soap opera. Many people knew that. Hands up. One. Elizabeth. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> From away. Right. I didn't raise this, but it's listed in the Guinness Book of Records as the longest-running drama in American TV history. It was broadcast CBS 57 years, from 1952 to 2009. And the interesting thing about that series, this is just trivia, by the way, if you ever find yourself in a quiz, all right? But the interesting thing about that series is this, that it was inspired by a series of radio sermons that the person who then ended up being the screenwriter listened to, guiding Late. Well, back to this one. Star of wonder. Star of night, as we often sing. It's mentioned at least four times in those 12 verses that we just read. And for years, this star has intrigued people. Particularly those who are into astronomy and stargazing in the study of constellations, they've discussed and they've debated this phenomenon extensively. And they've kind of asked questions like, did a star like this, as we understand it, you know, one that appeared in the night sky and then it moved in a certain direction and it stopped over a particular town and it stopped specifically over the outbuilding of an innkeeper's residence. Did a star like that really exist? Could it? And was it a star? Or was it a comet? Or a meteor? Or a nova? Or a supernova? Or a triple junction? Conjunction, junction, conjunction. See, I have no idea what I'm talking about. But if you do, if you do want to know any of those, just ask Yule Webb after the service during coffee or Ken Smith if he's here. They'll tell you all about those things. But people have kind of wondered and pondered this for years. The Star of Bethlehem actually has its own website where you can explore the evidence and the science behind it. But let me suggest that it's probably better understood as another miracle moment at Christmas. Given everything else that's kind of going on in and around this historic event, maybe the star's appearance and its behavior particularly is another exceptional, God-arranged event. It's a supernatural occurrence. As one lecturer from the San Francisco Morrison's Planetarium said, if you accept the story told in the Bible as the literal truth, then the Christmas star could not have been a natural apparition. Its movement in the sky and its ability to stand above and mark a single building, these would indicate that it was not a normal phenomenon, but a supernatural saying. One given from on high and one that science will never be able to explain. You see, this star was not normal. It was, as the carol writer encourages us to sing, it was a star of wonder. And when you think about its presence, and when you think about its activity, if that is going to be a stumbling block to you, 
if it's going to be a hurdle, if its presence and activity is going to be an obstacle, then the idea of a virgin birth, the idea of the almighty creator God nestled in the placenta of a peasant and becoming one of us, that, that's going to just completely wreck your head. And so the story in Matthew 2 of the star does not make a statement about an astronomical phenomenon. Don't allow that to become a distraction because it has for many. There's something bigger going on here. Something deeper regarding this guiding light. And for me, it's the people who saw this striking light. It's the people who were led by it that should actually capture our imagination and arrest our attention. These magi from the east. This unnatural star that's kind of dancing in the moonlight, yes, it's interesting, but it's the people. It's the kind of people who were invited to follow it. They're the ones who should fascinate us. Why? Because they were different. So very different. They came from another land. They came from the east. They were foreigners. They were Gentiles. These guys weren't Jewish. These guys weren't the predictable ones that people were expecting to come. They were astrologers. They were astronomers. They were possibly sorcerers. And that's what's so extraordinary. That's what's so surprising about this part of the story. The guiding light that leads to the Christ child is revealed to men who are unusual. And it's these unexpected witnesses, however many there were, they're the ones who make the journey. They're the ones who buy and worship. They're the ones who give their gifts. They're the ones who draw our attention to what is the far greater miracle of Christmas. And so the story of the star doesn't make a statement about an astronomical phenomenon. But you know what it does make a statement about? It makes a statement about the stellar Jesus. His birth, his coming, his arrival is what should grab every single headline because do you know what? His birth draws, or more importantly, he draws Gentiles. He draws unexpected and surprising outsiders, strangers, pagans to worship. And Jesus is still doing that. Jesus is still drawing outsiders, strangers, unexpected people to a place of worship. And why? Because it's God's heart. Because God, you see, loved the whole world. Not just some corner of it. Not just one particular country within it. God so loved the whole world that he gave. And as the angels proclaimed, his birth is good news that will bring great joy for who? For some people, no. The story we read at Christmas says the angels came proclaiming good news that is great joy for all 
people, irrespective of background and upbringing and location and situation. Jesus is the light of the world. And the light shines on. And so whoever you are, and wherever you come from, and whatever your location is, God invites you to worship. God invites you to come and to bow the knee in surrender and submission to the life and light provider, Jesus, in whom is life. And that life is the light for mankind. The star is intriguing, but the people who are guided by it are compelling. And they remind us never to exclude anyone, never to write anybody off, irrespective of how far away from Jesus they appear to be. The presence of the Magi in the Christmas story is more of a mystery, far more of a surprise than the presence of a supernatural light. But at another level, they themselves, the Magi, I want to suggest, are a kind of guiding light for us. Because they point us in the right direction. They reveal, they allow us to catch a glimpse of what is a proper, what actually is an appropriate response to Jesus at Christmas. This Christmas, next Christmas, any Christmas. You see, their hearts were filled with immense joy. And as a result of their discovery, as a result of finding and encountering Jesus, this newborn king, what do they do? They worship, and they worship in bended knee, and their worship leads to giving. And theirs is a brilliant example for us to swallow. They, they are a guiding light. Because they guide us to come again to Jesus and to come again and wonder, to come again and worship, to bow our hearts, to bend our knees in humble submission, to surrender, to give all that he so rightly deserves. And so let's allow the Magi to shed some light on our response to Jesus this Christmas. Now let me go back to the story. And remember, for some of you, remember, I've said that these Advent, this Advent series are kind of a series of reflections rather than kind of me going through text. Just bear that in mind, all right? But let's go back to the story because there is at least a hint of or a reference to another guiding light, another light that has kind of been given and provided to reveal the identity and the whereabouts of Jesus. Have a look at verse 6. Because whenever Herod, you see the existing king, hears that these magi have arrived and we're looking for a newborn king. Herod's disturbed, understandably so. No one in his position needs to hear about the arrival or the birth of a rival monarch. And so he calls together all the peoples, not his, now they're not his chief priests, but he calls together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law and he says to them, listen, see this Messiah that I, that I know you're waiting on, this anointed one. Where's he gonna be born? And he quickly gets an answer. These chief priests and teachers of the law say he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And the reason that they know that is because they're able to quote the prophet Micah. And so Matthew chapter 2 verse 6, and those of you who have got any kind of study Bible, will tell you that it is just a direct 
reference to or quote from Micah chapter 5, verses 2 and 4. But here's a point. You see, God's word was and still is a guiding light that leads people to Jesus. God's word informed the chief priests and teachers of the law. It enabled them to get a sense of what was going on. Now, whether they understood it or not, whether they were prepared to accept it or not is another issue, but God's word via the prophet Micah helped them to identify, yes, this Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, plus he's going to be a ruler and he's going to shepherd his people. And Psalm 119, verse 105 reminds us, you know something? God's word is a lamp. It's a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. God's word is a guiding light. And as I reflected on on this image again, because we have looked at this before, but I was reminded of our importance and need to read, to live, and to follow God's word. Because this has been given to us as a guiding light. It is a source of direction. It's a source of purpose. It's a source of hope. It is absolutely essential for us to engage with God's word on a regular and consistent basis. Because amongst other things, what does it do? It enables us to stay focused on Jesus. It illuminates Jesus. That's what God's word does for us. Not just the gospels. Of course they illuminate Jesus, but also the rest of Scripture. I love that bit whenever Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. After his death and after his resurrection. And he joins these two rather weary, disillusioned disciples. For whatever reason, they don't recognize this third person who's joined them. But on that journey we read... And let me, let me quote Luke 24. Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets. Why? Explaining from the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, so much of scripture points to Jesus, helps us get to know Jesus, and therefore it's critical that those of us who claim to follow Jesus, it's critical that we are people of this book, that we're reading it, feeding on it, and allowing it to inform and shape and influence our faith and discipleship. You know, over the past few weeks, we've talked quite a bit about the importance of of prayer in Christian life, that, that deep people of faith are praying people, while also deep people of faith are Bible people. Deep people are those who consistently and regularly are feeding on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I know this all might seem and feel like, hang on, this is a bit of a tangent from Matthew 2, is it not? Matthew's version of the Christmas story. And yet the word of God via the prophet Micah is recalled in order to shed light on the location of Jesus' birth and to identify who he was. And so this morning, I wanted to highlight once again the value of God's word as this ongoing guiding light that enables us to follow Jesus. And if for whatever reason, and I know there are many for people, but if for whatever reason you've stopped reading it and you've stopped engaging with it and you've set it down or maybe you've even turned it off, can I encourage you this Christmas 
to get hold of this guiding light again and allow it to direct you back to Jesus and back along the right path. One final thought and question. What is it that is going to be the guiding light today for people in order to find Jesus? What, what is going to guide people today to Jesus? It's unlikely to be a supernatural star. It seems that that was a, a one-off first Christmas miracle. It's also unlikely to be the guiding light of God's Word. Why? Because mainly fewer and fewer people today ever read God's Word, ever even listen to it, ever even go anywhere where they might be encouraged to and get fewer and fewer people today. I know you can also read statistics that say 80% of church goers no longer engage with God's Word on any kind of regular basis. But setting those 80% aside, most people beyond the walls of our churches never read God's Word. Couldn't care less what it says. So what's going to guide people today to Jesus? I'm not suggesting God won't use a supernatural means. I'm also not saying God can't use His Word to impact and arrest people's lives, not saying that. But for most people today, the most likely thing that's gonna guide people, that's gonna point people, that's gonna direct people towards Jesus in the first place is us. It's us. It's our lives, and it's our witness, which is probably why Jesus said, and we're gonna take a closer look at this in week four of this series, but it's probably why Jesus turned around to his disciples and said, you know something? You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You are. At some level, you're to be guiding lights. Don't hide yourselves. Don't conceal your light. But shine, and shine brightly like stars in the universe, as the Apostle Paul will later say. Guide people, point people, direct people to Jesus. Including some of the most unlikely people imaginable. And so the question for those of us who are the salt of the earth and the light of the world those who are followers of Jesus. How brightly is that guiding light of ours shining? And how brightly will it shine this Christmas? And so just as we finish, when you think of the star of Bethlehem, that original guiding light that led people to Jesus, let me encourage you not so much to focus on it, but the focus on the original followers, the Magi, the unlikely worshippers. And remember that even the most surprising people are invited. Secondly, let's allow the response of the Magi to guide our response this Christmas, that our response will be one of worship that leads to giving, giving of what Jesus deserves. And thirdly, 
let's reflect on the guiding light of God's word and ensure that it continues to shine brightly in our lives this week and it continues to direct our paths and point us to Jesus. And finally, may you and I be those guiding lights that point others to Jesus this Christmas. Because unless we do, so many are going to remain in darkness. And tonight, if, if you come back tonight and we consider this paradoxology of God, a God who is terribly compassionate. And if you wrestle with the whole idea of a God of particularly the Old Testament who seems so violent and vengeful and bloodthirsty and terrifying and terrible. And yet he's also a God of compassion. If you struggle with that paradox, I encourage you to come back tonight. Because the truth is, God has compassion. And he has sent Jesus and he's slow to anger. But there will come a day when those who continue to walk in darkness will discover something of that terrifying aspect of God's character that we need to hold in tension with his compassion.